I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Theology. Theology. Unplugged. Theology Unplugged. I'm Michael Patton, and I have a special session today just going through questions, objections to Christianity. I spent a lot of time obviously reading these, um, reading what people are saying out there. I, I keep up with a lot of blogs, especially people who used to be Christians but are no longer Christians. So this time we're going to go through and talk about a few questions from polytheism in the Old Testament, Mark chapter 16, uh, death rate of children. You'll get it all in just a little bit. But first, let me try to get you to subscribe. Wherever you're at, subscribe to this channel. If you're coming to us on Twitter or on Facebook, you can go over to YouTube and subscribe there. I try to push these things through all of the major social media outlets that we have at Credo House. And my personal social media outlets, I think it's working okay. I'm getting better at it. As we move forward, uh, my, my, you may see a little bit of a lag sometimes in the camera. Hopefully this week I'll be getting a new computer, and that new computer is going to take care of a lot of the problems that I have because I'm working with a very old computer. But don't forget to subscribe and uh, check us out at credocourses.com or credohouse.org. Both of those. Credo Courses is the place that you go to to find our curriculum, including the theology program, the most important curriculum that we have ever produced in the 25 years that we have been in existence. But um, also the the uh, blog at Credo. Uh, credohouse.org. That's where the parchment and pen blog is. I've been blogging there since 2005. So quite a few articles. And um, one of the main things I try to do is just like in this theology unplugged sessions that I try to be unplugged. I try to be not so much uncensored as it is trying to be as real as I can with you, not try to give you any canned form of Christianity. Reason for that is because I don't like canned Christianity. I don't like cliche Christianity. There's nothing more probably in the church that drives me insane is that there's a veneer and a mask that we put on that make us look like we are supposed to be a certain type of Christians or we're, we want to present ourselves a certain way without ever going through the, the difficult times and the struggles that we have personally and understanding that we are not heads and tails above everybody else, but we are clothed in Jesus Christ. And that is the reason why we stand before God in his grace because of what Christ did. But other than that, we struggle just like everybody else. And sometimes I don't think it's it's represented. But with questions as well, whenever you're talking about objections to Christianity, which uh, I'm going to be talking about here today, these are all objections. I, I, I rarely find any anymore that are something new to me. I mean, every once in a while I do find something that kind of strikes me and I say, well, that is a really good question. I've never thought of it that way. But most of the time I've had these in my own personal reflection. You know, I, I do not... I, I do not uh, just try to confirm what it is I already to, already believe, even though in some sense, of course, I, I want to. I'm, I'm 
emotionally inclined to believe what I already believe, the most comfortable. We don't like change. And so whenever something new is introduced, um, my first thought and everybody's first thought is to reject it and just kind of uh, uh, write it off as, as something simple or something that anybody could answer. But some of these questions are very hard, and I think we need to deal with them honestly with ourselves uh, so that we can deal with them honestly with the world as well. I mean, people can see through the veneer Christianity. And so we, we've got to do our best to be ourselves and to really wrestle with questions. But having said that, there's not many that I have not come across that I have not asked myself to myself and struggled with myself. So let me uh, start is one I was reading earlier today. And it is, uh, was the ancient Jewish religion polytheistic? Now, the objection here is that whenever you look at the Old Testament, you don't really see anything different than what you see in the Fertile Crescent or in the uh, world of Mesopotamia, all the area around uh, Egypt to Jerusalem and Syria, all that area, they all had the same type of religious outlook, which was a polytheistic worldview. And having a polytheistic worldview simply means that you have more than one God. Polytheism is very well represented today, especially within Hinduism, but many people are polytheistic. Uh, polytheistic. Uh, the Mormon religion is polytheistic. I don't know if they admit to that, but uh, I mean, essentially they are, uh, that there are many gods. And so whenever you're looking at the Old Testament, many people who would object to it, and I understand where they get this, is that in the Old Testament, it seems to acknowledge the existence, at least, of other gods. And this is very true. I mean, whenever you're in the Old Testament, there are parts, uh, big parts, I mean, maybe even the mass majority of it, that seems to be acknowledging that the other gods exist besides God. Even in the first commandment, he says, uh, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. It doesn't say the first commandment is to believe that there are no other gods, but you shall not have any of the other gods before me. I'm the first. I am the primary God. There's another primary passage in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that is referred to uh, quite often, and very rightly so. Let me read it from... From, I'm going to read it from the New American Standard first. It says, uh, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of men, he set boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. So he set boundaries, and who got these boundaries? According to the number of the sons of Israel, the sons of Israel. But the problem with this is that this does not reflect our most ancient manuscript evidence in the Dead Sea Scrolls. From the Dead Sea Scrolls, if we are reading this, it doesn't say the sons of Israel. It says, according to the gods. Uh, whenever God divided the nations, he divided them according to, and let me read it from let me read it from the Net Bible first, because it almost gets there. It says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided up humankind, he set boundaries of the people according to the number of the heavenly assembly. Now, I think even that is, I, I know they're trying to do it, but at the same time, that's really what it says. I think the New American Bible, uh, surprising as it may seem, sometimes they really do get things very well, not saying most of the time they don't, but uh, in the New American Bible, it has this. 
when the Most High allotted each nation its heritage, when it separated out human beings, he set boundaries of the people after the number of the sons of divine beings. So, again, I mean, maybe not saying gods, but divine beings is the same thing. So right here we have, in I'm trying to look at another interpretation, see if uh, anybody had revised standard version does have it that way. It says he fixed boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. And so the sons of God, what are these? These are sons of God. These are, these are other gods. The divine assembly, the Old Testament speaks of very, very often that God gathers the divine assembly. And, you know, he talks about other gods throughout the Old Testament. Now, of course, you know, this is polytheistic. This is the belief in other gods. So the question is, was ancient Israel not really monotheistic? Were they polytheistic? Well, I would say they were polytheistic. I mean, Abraham was polytheistic. Whenever uh, uh, God called him out of his land, he was a pol- he worshipped many gods, but he set his allegiance toward God, t- toward Yahweh, uh, toward the Lord Most High, and that's what God commanded him to do. But you do see sprinkling and hints that get clearer and clearer throughout the Old Testament about there being only one God. I mean, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, the Lord our God is one God. Now, that doesn't say he's the only God, but he does say that that he's one God, and it really begins to focus our attention upon the unity of God and that he's not divided. There's not many of him, but he is just one God. And then, of course, throughout the Old Testament, you know, as you get into Isaiah chapter 40 through 48 is one of the greatest diatribes in all of scripture. I love it. It's humorous. It's fun to listen to. And it's just God basically mocking people for worshiping other gods, that these gods are not really gods. They don't, they can't do anything. And so you have this in the Old Testament, yes. The question is, that I read today, was what makes the Old Testament different? What makes Israel different than the polytheism of the day? The polytheists also, you know, had many gods, and they each person would focus upon a certain god according to whatever it is that they are, they uh, their purpose was. Um, this is something that you know, we, we sometimes refer to as henotheism. Henotheism is the belief in many gods, but setting your allegiance or your focus upon one god. There are other names for it as well. Uh, but this is what you find in the Old Testament. You do find that there's the acknowledgement of other gods, and then you have a building toward all the way until the New Testament, whenever Paul says there is no God but one, and you have this being very clearly stated in the New Testament, but it's a progressive development of revelation. And that's kind of one of the funny things whenever you you start, whenever you read the Bible, people expect that God uh, kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and gave them a full revel- revelation of himself, uh, you know, as perfect as it can be right then. As if everything in the Old Testament is, I believe everything in the Old Testament is true and is right, but it's true according to the context of the revelation that is given. And it's kind of like whenever we raise children and, you know, you have an adult talk and then you have children talk and you lead them along throughout their lives in understanding certain things, you know, about how babies are born and where they come from and little piecemeal at a time to try to understand it. And you get more and more until they're old enough to be able to understand 
how it is that children are born, how it is that children are created. And so you have a situation of progressive revelation. You do not give it all at once. You give it little bits at a time. But again, what is it? what makes this different than the polytheism of the world, of the rest of the world? Well, one main thing is just in general, the, the, uh, the um, revelation that is given is progressive. It does change. It does advance as we go forward. Doesn't mean the earlier versions are wrong or obsolete. It's that the later versions build upon the foundation of the earlier versions. God does this throughout the Old Testament, throughout the laws. He does not come and uh, have a, a revelation that is exactly perfected according to his perfect will at the time, but he but he accommodates to the culture of the day. And so whenever they're talking about slavery in the Old Testament, of course, you do have the Old Testament, and it does allow for slavery, but it regulates it. It makes it better than the culture around them. And more and more, you have these types of things, whether it be with, with um, uh, the treatment of women and their rights, you know, whenever a man divorces his wife, well, the word, they're allowed to divorce him, but they have to have valid reason. But in the Old New Testament, you have uh, you have a husband having to love his wife, which is giving the rules to the to the husband rather than the wife, which would have been unheard of. Here's how to be a good husband. Nobody was told how to be a good husband in the culture of the day. You only had rules about how to be a good wife. But here's God saying. You've got to have rules about how to be a good husband, and it progressively develops. So when we're reading the Old Testament, we have to keep that in mind. There is a progressive revelation. And in that progressive revelation, then our systematic theology begins to develop. We begin, begin to put it all together so that we can understand it as a whole, not in the little bits and pieces that were given before, but as we see all those bits and pieces come together. You have this also about Jesus. Whenever Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden, God did not say, hey, I'm going to send my son named Jesus in a few thousand years, and he is going to die on the cross and raise from the grave. And as long as you trust in him, what you've done here in the garden will be forgiven. No, he gives them this little piece, this little obscure, this this uh, odd, what we call the Proto-Evangelion, which is means the first gospel. In Genesis chapter 3.15, he says, um, to the serpent, uh, the seed of the woman will, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And basically God was telling Adam and Eve at the time that the works of Satan, that which was done in the garden, the works of evil that were birthed out of the first rebellion will be overcome and overwhelmed by the, a seed of a woman. Doesn't give you very much. It's a little bit, but whenever you put it together and it's true, but whenever you put it together with all the revelation, as it continues on throughout the Old Testament and then in the, to the New Testament, what you see is this beautiful tapestry that not only is, uh, is uh, in accordance with our theology of Christ and our theology of the Bible, but it's, it's, you, you can't really imagine it being able to be accomplished outside of one divine author. Uh, it, it's one divine author who is giving you the little bits and pieces that fit together, even though the individual authors don't understand how these pe be, uh, 
bits and pieces fit together. So whenever we're talking about polytheism, the Old Testament, yes, polytheism was allowed for. It wasn't, it wasn't condoned as a philosophical understanding of how we should view God. But at that time, polytheism simply meant the God that you worship, the God that you placed your allegiance in, the God that you followed. And that's where God comes in and presents himself differently than the other gods. He says, I am the Elion, I am the most high, not just I am one of the gods, but I am the most high. You shall have no other gods before me. I am before all other gods, which is absolutely amazing. He is before all other gods. He is the God of gods, the Lord God Almighty. And to the point where you have, you know, the prophets, Elijah, who is challenging all the other gods and laughing at them because they can't do anything to thwart God, our God. Yahweh, the Most High. And it, I mean, it shows through this progressive revelation, this beautiful development that, wait a minute, you know, God is really the only other God. Maybe there's some other beings out there that are powerful and that God made, and we can call them heavenly beings or heavenly hosts, but God is the one main God. And in progressive revelation, as it develops, also our philosophy of God develops and we understand that more and more just like a children becoming an adult you can't really reason with a child logically the way you can whenever you become an adult and whenever you become an adult you think through things in such a way to where you're like wait a minute let's not just define god as that which we worship but the ultimate creator of all things therefore there can only be one god who is uncreated, who is a simple God, not composed of parts, who is one in unity, who is um, um, totally independent of anything else in the world, including time, from whom out of nothing all things birth. But this is just the development that happens, and this is what you would naturally uh, see is the development that happens. So yes, in, in the Old Testament, I do believe that they were polytheistic. Uh, they were, well, henotheistic, focusing upon one God. Um, you also have this other word, it's mono, uh, monolatry, which is the same thing, but a little bit different than he, henotheism, M-O-N-O-L-A-T-R-Y. That is a little bit different in that you are not just focusing for a time on a particular one of the gods, but you are devoted to that God. That is your God. You, you believe this is the main God. So Old Testament does develop in its understanding. I don't want you to get mixed up there. So that is question number one. Question number two is this. Can Christians drink poison? I heard this also today in a video. Some guy was uh, teaching other Christians, and and he brought up Mark chapter sixteen, and he was an atheist, and or just people within our culture that were kind of Christian. I don't know how Christian they really were, but he was trying to talk them into not being a believer and uh, ridiculing Christianity based upon this passage in Mark chapter sixteen. And you hear this quite often: people using this passage for both, uh, you know, in the church for ill and outside of the church for ill in the sense that they bring it up and use it in an abusive way within the church and then mock Christianity from outside the church. But listen to this. This is in Mark chapter 16 after Jesus has risen from the dead. 
And Jesus is talking to the apostles and tells them what it is that they are to do now that he is risen, that he is getting ready to ascend into heaven. What is the commission that he's giving them? And it says, uh, go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Verse 15. Verse 16 says, he, this is Christ talking, he who has believed and who has been baptized shall be saved, but he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. These are the signs that will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. Now, maybe, maybe so. I mean, I, I've never cast out a demon that I know of. Uh, they will speak in new tongues, new languages. Now, I certainly haven't done that. I've learned Greek and I've learned Hebrew and uh, no English, but those are the only ones that I've ever done. And I can't even speak Greek or Hebrew, at least not very well. Uh, it's, uh, both of the ones that I speak are both dead languages, although the Hebrews picked up and is now revived. Uh, and then listen to this, verse 18, they will pick up serpents and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick they will recover. So that's pretty extraordinary. I mean, here's the signs that accompany Christian. And this guy's laughing and, you know, the uh, uh, whole audience begins to chuckle as well because, you know, I mean, we don't do this. You don't go into a Christian church and get initiated, get baptized, and then get handed poison, some cyanide to drink or to put in your mouth and to see if you die, to make sure you're a Christian. Nobody does that. Uh, now there are churches that are snake handling churches, you know, that handle rattlesnakes. And that's just a tragic, tragic abuse and misunderstanding of what's going on here in this passage. But people do try to do that. There's been many people who have died from handling rattlesnakes, uh, lost limbs because they've been bitten. And so that, that is a, that is something that, like I said, is abused within the church, but also mocked from outside the church. But here's what you have to understand about this passage, and maybe this can be the first time you all have heard this. Um, this guy tells the audience this, and it was the first time they'd heard it, and here it comes from an unbeliever, somebody who does not believe in Christianity, who is informing them about something of Mark chapter 16, the truth of Mark chapter 16, and they feel like maybe the their church has betrayed them because they were never told this before. And if they go home and research this, yes, it will be true. What he said was true. And that is this part of Mark chapter 16, often called the longer ending of Mark, uh, starting at verse nine, really, because uh, in the earliest manuscripts, it ends at verse eight. We don't have anything past verse eight after uh, the women went from the tomb and fled the tomb and were scared and fear and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That's it. Jesus rose from the dead. The women see him. They get scared. They don't say anything to anyone because they were afraid. Well, somebody later on said, well, that's not really how it ended. So let me add some stuff. And so we have different endings of Mark starting in verse nine. There's actually two or three different endings. This is the longest ending that has found its way into the King James manuscripts, the Textus Receptus, and unfortunately has found its way into our Bibles today. Um, I, I don't know that you could even print a Bible without having this longer ending. I think it's terribly unfortunate. I think it's uh, it, uh, even putting it in brackets. 
I think is misleading. Most people don't know what brackets mean. That mean it's kind of inspired if it's in brackets. The New American Standard will put it in italics. What does that mean? Does that mean it's really inspired if it's in italics? I never understood putting something that may not be in the manuscript, may not be in the original in italics. That doesn't make any sense. It should be just the opposite. But either way, brackets or italics, I don't like it. The best I would say is just to put it in a footnote at the bottom and put uh, other uh, later manuscripts have this. But I would say the very best would just not be in to include it at all because that is where the gospel ends. As far as we know, there may be lo a lost ending to Mark chapter 16 uh, that we've never found the real one. But we know that this, starting in verse 9, is not correct. It's different, different uh, style. It's it's different traditions. It comes way too late. There's it, it's very hard to argue that this is an actual uh, representation of the original. And so, having said that, you have that passage that talks about whenever they hear the gospel and are be and believe, uh, they will speak in tongues. They will cast out demons. They will they will uh, drink poison. All of these fantastical things that the early church did. I mean, later on, after the New Testament was written, you do have some traditions that would that would think this way. And so they added this in on their own. But it's not in the original. There is nothing in the Bible that tells us we can drink poison. If you're really a Christian, you'll drink poison. And so to mock Christianity based upon the longer ending of chapter Mark or Mark chapter 16 is very irresponsible. It really is. I mean, nobody should do that. And once I hear somebody doing it, I meet the thinking they are extremely ignorant in this area or they are extremely manipulative because they have to take a passage that's not even in the Bible in order to mock the Bible and mock Christianity. But Mark chapter 16, that longer ending should not be there. Okay, next one. Um, the historic death rate of children shows that God is aloof. Now, this argument I, I have great compassion for and understanding for. And this is the idea that there's, basically the big idea is that there's so much waste that goes on in creation. So many, um, so many things that happen that just don't need to happen and you don't even know about that seem meaningless and without reason. This particular one has to do with the death rate of children, especially maybe 200 years ago, 300 years ago. You had, and I'm not sure if this is exactly correct, but I'm pretty sure it is close. You had the average person, uh, you had about a 50% chance of making it to age one. Uh, your, your child, if they were born, there was a 50-50 shot that they would make it past age one. And then, of course, uh, it, it's it's also difficult all the way up to, uh, I think it's uh, the age 21, 22. And then if they make it past 22, then most people lived a very long life. But those first years were very difficult. Now, I think it was John Owen, the great theologian, who had who outlived all of his 12 children. I think uh, his last old, his oldest child maybe made it to whenever they were 22 years old, but all of his children died, uh, whenever they were young. And I always think to myself, how can somebody, you know, continue to believe with such passion like John Owen did, even though this is going on just massive waste in his whole family and seemingly seeming purple purposelessness. I also don't know how much 
miscarriages have to do with this, but I have I have heard that they that the um, miscarriage rate of people who have miscarriages and don't even know that they were pregnant is astronomical. That may be true. It may not be true, but let's assume that it is. Let's assume that what I've heard is correct and that every per every married couple that has children probably has a child sometime in the past that was miscarried and they didn't even know it. Uh, egg got fertilized and didn't implant or implanted shortly. And, and uh, you know, there was some type of problem that happened that people didn't even know about because it was so early on in the pregnancy. Well, this is the same type of deal. You just have, if you have all these people that are dying so early on throughout the history of the world until today, today, I think you, I mean, obviously there's a much, much greater chance of a child making it past age one, I think it may be around 1% of children die before age one, uh, and 50% used to die uh, before age one 200 years ago, and that's how it was for all of human history. Now, let's assume that's correct. I'm not, I'm not jumping on and saying that is. I've always assumed that it is. I've heard it many times, and I, I uh, think to myself, how do we find God in that? How do we find his purpose in that? How do we find his purpose in such meaninglessness to where evil seems to, death seems to reign greater than life itself? Now, there, there's all kinds of ways that I could approach this, but I'm just going to tell you how I approach it myself in my own mind. I read the scriptures in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, and in Ecclesiastes, in Lamentations, in many of the uh, uh, letters that are very uh, downtrodden, like Job, uh, the book of Job, to where you don't understand, it does seem like it's spinning meaninglessness. meaninglessness. Um, the Bible is not foreign to this. It's not as if this is something that, that the Bible is going, man, I hope they never find out about all this trouble that goes on in the world and all these things that seem to be worthless and meaningless. It's not as if God is scared of these things. I mean, like I said, he wrote entire books, Ecclesiastes, Job, about the suffering that we go through and how it feels like things are meaningless, that things don't have a reason. Now, somebody from the outside looks at this and says, there can't be a God if there are these types of things going on. Because what you're saying is that the, your God, who is all-powerful, who is in control of all things, and has a reason for doing the things he has, has a reason for letting all of these children die, if it's true. They all die before age one. And of course, you look at that, and there is an emotional connection you may make to that, especially if you have children, especially if you've had a child who has died. And you don't really understand how, how God can be involved and in control if he is allowing this stuff to go on in his world, or if he is causing this stuff to happen in his world, whichever view you take. Now, again, that is something you can identify with, and you can understand where they're it's something that you can empathize with. And that's usually the, the strongest types of arguments that are out there today. It's not really the logical ones, the ones that, you know, you talk about the contradictions in the Bible or you talk about, you know, the uh, the creation of the 
world and evolution, those things are kind of set aside these days for very emotional um, arguments that have to do with something that hits us deep down inside, something to where we don't understand how it is that these things can happen because it just doesn't seem right. And while, again, I, I sympathize with it, I've got to back up and say, first of all, listen, the Bible already talks about this. It's not as if this is something the Bible's hiding from or scared of. Okay, you may have brought up an illustration, particular illustration with statistics, but it's not as if the Bible hasn't already generally spoken to this over and over again. So it's nothing new to the Christian faith. As a matter of fact, God wants us to be prepared for such things. You have the things that happen in the world that seem completely worthless and meaningless. You have the Lazaruses who sit at a rich man's gate and ha seems to have a totally purposeless life who is completely dependent upon his friends, who can never do anything on his own, who has no self-dignity, no self-respect, um, you have him dying while dogs are licking his source. But yet at the same time, uh, the, the name Lazarus means God helps. He's the one that God was with in that story, not the rich man who had everything, but with Lazarus who had nothing. And so basically, we don't understand why Lazarus is there. We don't understand why he exists. We don't understand why he has to be born and be in pain his entire life and seem to do no good whatsoever. But we don't know what God is doing. And God says to us, listen, I've got plenty of Lazarus in the world. I've got plenty of things that are going to cause you to scratch your head if you look at it in such a way. There are many, many things that are emotive or emotional arguments that you're going to make in your mind that seem to discredit me. But I've already told you about these. It's nothing new. It's nothing that you're going to Are you going to trust in me? Are you going to trust that I know what I'm doing? Because again, logically, there is nothing in this world that you can, you cannot bring up that argument and say in any, any way that God can't have a purpose there. All you can say is, I don't feel like he could have a purpose there. I don't see a purpose there myself, but you cannot jump from that. I do not see a purpose to therefore God has no purpose. Therefore, God has no existence at all. I mean, it's just, it's just a jump that you're making. You're appealing to people's emotions and trying to make an argument that seems to be based upon some sort of logical principles. It is not a logical argument. It is not a rational argument. It is not powerful in any sense from the standpoint of your philosophical worldview. It's only powerful from an emotional standpoint. But again, there's nothing new. It does not surprise us. It should not surprise us. We have to trust in the Lord with all of those things that happen in our life that seem to be meaningless. This brings me to my last one, which is very similar. And this is one that I read today as well. Um, it is called The Day That God Overslept. This was this speaks about a incident 1996 that happened in Scotland, again, very much like the issue we brought up just a moment ago, to where a gunman walks into a school and shoots 16 children. Now, this uh, we know about these things. These things happen all the time. Uh, it's not as if we have to go back to 1996 to find this. But this is the one that stands out because there was a teddy bear that sat outside of this school 
that uh, had a, a sign around it that said the day that God overslept. And again, this, this guy brings it up, this person, that, this particular uh, person that I'm watching, and he says, God overslept that day, you know, and God has overslept many, many, many days. That's what he says. Now, again, it's an emotional argument. It's basically saying the same thing, that a good God could not allow these types of things to happen because I don't want them to. I don't like it. And if God does allow these things to happen. I don't like him. Therefore, I'm just going to go ahead and say that he can't exist, but it's completely illogical. Of course, God can exist. Of course, he can allow bad things to happen. Of course, things like this do happen quite often, but it's nothing that we haven't dealt with before. It's nothing that is outside the structure. It's not as if we have no pieces of this part of the puzzle of Christianity. We have so many of these pieces. The first book of the Bible, Job, was the entire section of suffering and pain and seemingly seeming meaninglessness. God wanted us to have that book very first. Uh, because historically speaking, I believe that Job was written first. And so you have a God who tells us, hey, listen, before you get into this deal, there are bad things that happen. Not when you become a Christian, it's not as if all of a sudden you blind your eyes towards these things, or they don't happen to you, or they won't happen to your children, or now you'll have a completely a perfect understanding of it because I explain why I do it. He basically says at the beginning, I don't explain why I do it. You're going to have to trust me. I love you. My grace is sufficient for you. I sent my son to die on the cross for you and cover your sins, and I'm bringing all things to redemption. I will fix everything. All these things that you hate, all these things that you're scared of, all of these things that bring such an emotional, uh, you fall apart, I fall apart by two. That is sin. Then you say, why do you let it happen, God? And he says, trust me, okay? Just trust me on this. And again, Christianity is about trust. It's about faith. Not blind faith, but we're not going to have a reason. We're not going to have an understanding of why God does all that he does. We have a sufficient faith. We have a warranted faith because we know who Jesus Christ is. We know what he did on the cross. It all starts there. We know that he rose from the grave. And from there on, all the domino, dominoes fall out. And we can, based upon what Christ did, be based upon the historicity of the person and work of Jesus Christ, based upon our faith in him, we can trust that God is bringing all these things about for good. I mean, Christ is the ultimate illustration, is he not? Christ is God in human flesh who came to the earth rejected by his own creation, who was hung on a cross by his own creation, laughed at, mocked, beaten beyond recognition, and yet that is the most significant event that has happened in all of history. Why do we know? How do we know that? Because God told us that there are some things that he tells us the reason why they happen, but the mass majority of all the bad stuff that happens in the world, he doesn't tell us why it happens. He just says, trust me, but there is no logical argument that has been made here 
whatsoever. There's not, there's nothing in here that is even compelling that says, well, Christianity can't be true. Not the polytheism, not the Mark chapter 16, not the death rate of children. None of these things even suggest since the Bible is so open. Now, if the Bible did say, you know, you become a Christian and you'll never, you'll never have anybody, you'll, you'll understand everything. You'll never have any children who die. You'll never have a misunderstanding about world events. Um, or, or once a certain number of people uh, become Christians, everything will be fixed. There will not, there will no longer be any suffering. Uh, any pain for Christians. And then, of course, people could look and say, hey, look, look at this community of believers over here. They believe in Jesus, and there's not one person in this group that has ever had cancer. There's not one person in this group who's ever had a child die, that sort of stuff. That's what they expect. It's like they that's what they expect. But if they did, if that did happen, say there was a community like that, then that would automatically make the Bible at least false because the Bible says that believers above all else, and I know you don't like to hear this, but believers above all else, when you are trying to follow the Lord, when you are setting your heart upon him, you will become conformed to the image of Christ through what? What's the primary means? Suffering. And part of that suffering is not understanding why it is that God does things the way he does them. And that it's just the way we, we are. But again, not baseless. These are not apologetic arguments against Christianity. They're emotional arguments that we all should look at and try to deeply sympathize with, yet at the same time, bring them to their proper conclusion that they can't speak anything against our faith at least. Not the faith that has Job and Ecclesiastes and all of the Psalms, the Lamet songs, not the not the one who has uh, uh, Lamentations chapter three, one of the great chapters in the Bible about confusion and not understanding God. Whenever we already have that, we're already set up and we know that God is bringing things to a conclusion. We just trust in him while we're here. It doesn't mean we don't hurt. Doesn't mean we don't have pain. Doesn't mean we don't suffer loss and emotionally go through the pain of that loss. But at the same time, it doesn't affect the truthfulness of our faith. The only thing that could affect it is if these things did not happen because the Bible already says they will. So I hope this has been helpful for you. Thank you for joining me on Theology Unplugged. We'll get back to another uh, conversations with Tad next time, I believe it is. We're going to um, uh, do one of those tomorrow. But if you're coming to me live, once again, make sure you subscribe. And check us out. Also, your way that you can... Support us is right here. Support us by going, I believe this will take you to the Patreon. Yeah, this takes you to Patreon, my uh, Patreon page, which you become a member of. You get all kinds of great stuff, and it's really cool. You'll you'll love it. I post lots of stuff here. This is, a matter of fact, going to go there immediately after it publishes. And um, uh, we have live classes. The classes, the live classes are starting again next week once I get a new computer that can facilitate these things. Right now, I'm having, again, having trouble with my computer. It's too old. But uh, you'll want to show up for those things, live formal classes. Go to Patreon. This is the way to support us. Keep what we are doing going. Keep courses being given away all over the world that are uh, uh, 
not dumbed down whatsoever, but disciple people in theology from beginning to end. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us. Theology 